Good evening, it's Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 20 December 2023. We're really closing in on the mark of Christmas. I want to try to finish our discussion of lipoprotein lipase. And you know we've taken some detours uh, into chylomicronemia, hypertriacylglycerolemia, and then cardiovascular disease. We had already been discussing fatty liver, so we're going to be putting all of this together, again, under maybe a, a better heading. Uh, we could just call it dyslipidemia. <clears throat> so I want to go back to this paper that we were discussing, um, oh, I guess the last two or three lectures then. This is this paper uh, published in the Journal of Clinical Lipidology. It was published in uh, July, August 2022. I'll remind you that we're talking about a very small N number of patients, seven patients with genetic so-called inborn air metabolism for hypertricyclycerolemia. Six males, one female. Remember that here, here is a real quick rundown again on where the mutations are that were mapped to these individuals. Two patients had homozygous mutations in lipoprotein lipase. One patient, homozygous mutation, and the GPI anchor. One patient with a double heterozygous mutation in two different genes, of course, APOC2 and the LPL. One patient with a heterozygous mutation in APOA5. One patient with a heterozygous mutation in APOC2. And then one patient with a heterozygous mutation and APOA5 together with APOE2, okay? So when you say heterozygous, that means that one copy is good and one copy is mutated, right? Okay, so there's going to be a quantitative effect here, which can lead into a qualitative effect. So let's see what they find. I already ran a little bit of data. Now we're going to get into more serious discussion. Now, I want to make sure that you understand when I read the scientific literature, it's for the purposes of discerning how the work was done, why the work was done, and then a very careful examination of whether or not the results can be described as evidence for conclusions within the discussion of the paper. So, the endeavor to discern truth in research scientific literature is a general topic that we do at Authentic Biochemistry. And it is not the arena of chance or by the fact the paper has simply been peer-reviewed and published. We're trying to discern truth, with a small t, of course. Now, I've argued many times that often, Hypothetical deductions leading to the reasons why the research was conducted are flawed by personal bias of the researchers or the heavy mass of previously published work, maybe from that laboratory or maybe just in general on that topic, literature. So, even the discussion of the data and its folding into 
evidentiary statements can sometimes suffer from elements of mere opinion or what I call extrajectively informed events. That means those events that we're describing that are not relative to my or one's personal observations. So extrajective, right? So I use that term rather than objectively because I'm trying to uh, put in that a category that's more metaphysical. And the reason I want to use that is because I think it's necessary to discuss epidemiology with epistemology and metaphysics when discussing science in terms of the foundations of the research. So I, I use those philosophical terms because they are necessarily used to be able to know whether or not there were solid reasons for making hypotheses via deductions of previous research. And then from that, the inductive phase into the discussion section of peer-reviewed primary research papers to determine whether or not those inductions are valid and finally sound in terms of logical inference argumentation. Right. So going back to what I was saying, even those discussions of the data and folding that into what I call evidentiary statements sometimes suffer from elements of um, opinion and because the opinion can be based on this extrajectively, that's my term, informed events that are actually projected with a purpose of valence, deliberately articulated to support some current scientific establishment theories. So a better approach is the traditional. Okay, that's what unfortunately happens most of the time. But I would argue a better approach is what I would call the traditional familiarization of published literature peer-reviewed, which is describing research events which have been thoroughly studied and vetted so that the scientist, now another term I've invented, endojectively, thrown within what used to be called subjectively, just in terms of preferential discussion. Remember, this is a metaphysical term. Endojectively understands the current published literature through obviously an empirical dialectical analysis. So at that point, the dialectic can proceed with formal theses and antitheses, which can be used obviously to synthesize a working corpus ontology that could result in the formulation, ultimately, of a new hypothetical deduction. Okay? So, again, I'm emphasizing this. We'll get back in the paper in a moment. 
it's Christmas time, it's holiday time, so I feel like we can do a little bit of philosophical underpinnings, the foundation of science, really. And what I'm saying is mere opinion, what is that really? When someone has an opinion of something. Well, I've thought about it, and I say it's a it's like a practice of communication where the statement of a premise which is, of course, the product of describing what could be, right? A premise is like a proposition, right? What might be, when that is misappropriated as a logical conclusion of what must be. So that's what happens often with mere opinion. Now, I call that a modal error modal error in logic. And so here at Authentic Biochemistry, I don't waste my time or yours making categorical errors, especially ones of modality, which of course, you know, is my favorite category of thinking. I don't call it a category of reality, like the Aristotelian categories. I'm more of a Kantian. I would say these are categories of thinking. Okay. So this paper, 2022 paper in lipidology, measured circulating apolipoproteins using, remember, LC mass spec, standard technique. And patients with genetic HTG, hypertrasoglyceremia, compared to the normal lipidemic controls had similar total ApoB and ApoB, that's ApoB total, ApoB 100, and the concentration of ApoB 48 was higher in patients with genetic HTG as well. Okay. Now, the concentration of ApoB 48 was higher, whereas the total ApoB level and the ApoB 100 level did not differ that much between the HCG and the normal lipidemic. That's what I'm trying to say. So patients with genetic HCG compared to the normal lipidemic control also had higher concentrations of ApoC1, ApoC2, ApoC3, ApoE. So the only thing where you didn't see real differences between the disease and the normal lipidemic. Only time you didn't see a, uh, a major difference was looking at total ApoB lipo, apolipoproteins, and particularly ApoB100. Now, ApoB100, remember, that is the card-carrying VLDL apolipoprotein fraction. Okay. Now, in concentration concentrations, in contrast, concentrations, I'm sorry, of ApoA1, ApoA2, and ApoA4 were also not significantly different between patients with genetic HTG and normal lipidemic, lipidemic controls. So they're, they're parsing this out. They're saying, 
where they saw a huge difference was in April B48. Remember, that's the chylomicron, canonical apolipoprotein. And then those other ones were all in the APOC fraction, remember? All right. So remember what the purpose of the study was. They wanted to, the reason they're doing the whole study, remember the development of the hypothetical deduction, was they wanted to get a comprehensive overview of all the circulating apolipoproteins and compare that between the people that suffer from hypertricyclosterolemia with the uh, normal lipidemic controls. And the other reason this paper is being published is to look at the two different means by which they measure the apolipoproteins, the classical LC mass spec and the NMR spectroscopy. And what they're able to say is in addition to the ApoB48, which remember, again, chylomicron-specific apolipoprotein, the levels of exchangeable apolipoproteins, like what I just told you, what are those? Exchangeable between what? Different lipoprotein fractions. Remember that whole story, that whole lecture I gave you on, remember the, the transport of apolipoproteins back and forth between different lipoprotein fractions in circulation. So they're saying, the levels of exchangeable apolipoproteins like APOC1, APOC2, APOC3, and APOE were, remember, also all higher with the people that suffer from the inborn error of metabolism known as HDG compared to the normal or normal lipidemic controls. Okay? And they're saying that all of those apolipoproteins, all those Cs and APOE, we're obviously going to be also in chylomicrons and VLDL, because right? those are the uh, those are the two main lipoprotein fractions that have the highest level of tag, triacylglycerol, right? Of course. Now, I want you to also think though that the total ApoB100 level wasn't different between these patients and the normal lipidemic controls. And indeed, the patients with genetic HTG had lower numbers of ApoB100 carrying LDL particles. Because ApoB100 is also in LDL. It's in VLDL, it's in IDL, and it's in LDL. They had lower ApoB100 as compared to the normal lipidemic controls. And that difference is more significant the smaller the lipoprotein, meaning going from VLDL to IDL to LDL. Okay? So that's interesting. Less ApoB100. So overall, what that might suggest, and suggested to these authors, these researchers, that dysfunctional lipoprotein lipase can lead to the accumulation of, big surprise, TLRs, triacylglycerol-rich lipoproteins, which are all large lipoproteins, chylomicrons, for example. Whereas at the same time, dysfunctional lipoprotein lipase 
prevents the formation of the small known as atherogenic lipoprotein remnant particles, such as small, dense LDLC. So they're suggesting that maybe people with this kind of apolipoprotein profile, patients with HTG, maybe have a limited cardiovascular disease risk. Okay. They're putting all this on the literature that tells them that LDLC is the major associated lipoprotein fraction in circulation for atherosclerosis. Now, what have we been saying all these lectures? That hyperchylomicronemia and associated triacylglycerol is always linked when it's examined, when it's examined with a high risk for cardiovascular disease, including, of course, atherogenic disease profiles. And we explained why, because of the competition with the different apolipoproteins, all really backing all the way up to the level of too much circulating triacylglycerol. And then in these patients which have malfunctions in Removal, removal of fatty acids from all that triacylglycerol, you observe these pathophenotypes, okay? And they're saying, wow, well, why isn't that uh, all linked up to LDLC? It's because that is only a coincidental lipoprotein fraction. Yes, oxysterol is linked to LDL in macrophages, in the endothelia, in the arterial wall, will lead to plaque formation, atherosclerotic plaque formation. But the overall pathobiochemical event ontology is hypertriacylglycerol levels. And where do we find that? In the epidemic profile of patients who have obesity. Okay. So that's where I'm going with this. So patients with, a, with, with this inborn error of hypertriacylglycerolemia have high circulating ApoB48. Okay. The number of chylomicron particles is between 11 to 16 times higher in patients with that disease. Okay. Chylomicron particle transport, dietary lipids, of course, from where? where they are synthesized in the small intestine throughout the periphery, okay? And as they mature and become a remnant, they dock back to hepatocytes in the liver. Okay, LPL, as we know, uh, protein lipase, absolutely important for the hydrolysis of triacylglycerol from chylomicrons. Uh, it usually leaves behind what kind of product after fatty acid removal? Two monoacylglycerol, very similar to what happens in the small intestine when you're resynthesizing triacylglycerol from dietary triacylglycerol sources, right? The two position usually is left intact. 
and then the tricycle cells rebuild, right? Okay. So the comparable ApoB100 levels in patients with this genetic HTG, as compared to the normal lipidemic controls, suggest the production of and the uptake of ApoB100 carrying lipoprotein particles by the liver. And they're saying that's overall intact because they don't see any increase in ApoB100. Now, that might be the case that there's a high level of ApoB100. But remember, ApoB100 is the precursor to ApoB48. So shouldn't that also translate to an evening of that profile? Because you know you're going to have, you already know there are high levels of VLDL as well as chylomicrons. So I don't know if I buy that that, that normalized level of ApoB100 means that more ApoB100 is made and that that all relates to the fact that downstream, the LDLC, which also has ApoB100, is not increased. In fact, it's lower in these patients with uh, HTG hypertriacyclosurolemia, okay? Because they're not actually measuring transcription rates. They haven't looked at transcriptomes here. Or they haven't looked at overall translation products of all the apolipoproteins, only a few classes. And they're only picking them up in circulation. They're not measuring them, and it would be difficult, although they could have done biopsies. But they're not measuring these apolipoproteins where they're synthesized, such as in the liver for the ApoB100. You see? So these are where there are some uh, overreaching discussion premises, like I was talking at the beginning of the lecture today, this evening, I mean, overreaching, and it's overreaching because they didn't actually have the data, okay? They have the data of circulation, of, of those able to proteins in circulation. Of course, that's, you know, that's good. And they use those two different techniques, NMR and uh, LC uh, mass spec. So all that's okay. You know, I'm not I'm not arguing with any of that, right? All right. So they're saying that the APOC1 and APOC3, because it inhibits the uptake of lipoprotein remnants by the liver, remember that is what happens. And APOE mediates the uptake of lip uptake of lipoprotein remnants by the liver via the LDL receptor. And the LDL receptor related protein one that increases in things like APOC2, which is also associated with hypertriacylcholemia and hyperchylomicronemia are obviously demonstrating that they contain relatively more APOC2 in that fraction than the VLDL. Okay, because we saw APOC1 and APOC3 in the VLDL fractions. So the relatively high APOC2 and APOE in patients with genetic HTG compared with APOC1 and APOC3 levels, they're arguing again, listen to their arguing argument, is somehow an attempt for the body of these patients, the overall 
uh, a transcriptomic and transla translatable uh, fraction to compensate for impaired lipoprotein lipase activity. How? By stimulating residual lipoprotein lipase activity and enhancing hepatic uptake of tricyclosorvage lipoproteins. Okay, so that's a reasonable premise, but it doesn't, it's not a conclusion. It's not a conclusion. It's just a premise for work that they have yet to do, which is to actually look at transcription rates and translation of these proteins where they're synthesized, not where they end up in circulation. See? So it's not a put down of anything. I'm just put, I'm just pointing all of this out. <laughs> now, I want to remind you of something. Subsequent to its translation, LPL is secreted into heparin sulfate proteoglycan binding sites. Now, that occurs throughout the periphery. And in, importantly, because this is all about cardiovascular disease as well as hypercardiosuposuremia, those heparin sulfate proteoglycan binding sites are also found on cardiomyocyte apical surfaces. Yes, they are. Now, this isn't, shouldn't be considered unusual or even pathophysiological or pathobiochemical. Why? Because the heart muscle uses fatty acid for maintenance of contraction. The heart muscle uses a lot of fatty acid for its contractility. That's correct. Where skeletal muscle, where oxygen becomes limiting, quickly moves from fatty acid oxidation to what? After resting to higher activity because of oxygen tension is dropping to, to glucose, right? to glycolysis. And when it can, there's enough oxygen around to run the TCA and the ETC, but not fatty acid oxidation. Whereas the heart muscle could do that because there's always plenty of molecular oxygen, you see? So that's why fatty acid is binding through this heparin sulfate proteoglycan, which is on the surface that is the apical surface of the cardiomyocyte. Now, what goes on here? Positively charged, it's cationic, LPL itself, protein is attached via ionic interactions to the negatively charged heparin sulfate side chains, which are part of the HSPG, heparin sulfate proteoglycan, right? Yes. Now that works really well because it provides a pool of lipoprotein lipase, which is functional and active, which would allow the heart muscle to rapidly access fatty acid as a bioenergetic reservoir. Okay. Now, with that in mind, the demand for fatty acids can be easily understood as compensated for by LPL activity, right? But <clears throat> that also suggests that lipoprotein lipase doesn't become limiting. That is, you don't need more transcription and translation. It's just, it, if LPL is bound there to that heparin sulfate, 
that protein is going to be there long enough, as long as it doesn't get degraded, go, you know, go through limit proteolysis, proteosomal degradation, which eventually it will do, it will be there long enough to be able to maintain high level of fatty acid uptake at the cardiomyocytes. All right. Now, to reach the vascular lumen, lipoprotein lipase also requires more mobility. It requires detachment from the heparin sulfate proteoglycan and then a navigation across the interstitial space so that now it can bind to the glycosylphosphatidylinositol anchored high density lipoprotein binding protein 1. Remember? That's the GPI HBP1. So that also is a glycoprotein. Obviously, you can tell from its name. And also because it's secreted. And it's abundantly expressed in the heart, exclusively in the capillary and the thelial cells. So on the other side of those cells, the GPI-HBP1 accomplishes something unique. At its basolateral side, the GPI-HBP1, it's a GPI anchor, operates as that transporter, thus collecting lipoprotein lipase from the interstitial space surrounding the myocyte. And what's it doing? It's shuttling it to the endothelial cells, to the capillary lumen. And on the apical side of these ECs, the ability of GPI-HBP1 to avidly bind both lipoprotein tri 